0: This is FX Radio, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And with me in the studio today is none other than Belinda Reynolds, who is a dietitian with over 15 years' experience in the integrative uh, medicine industry. She's a senior educator with Biociticals who regularly presents to audiences throughout Australia and New Zealand. And she's well-known for her practical and easy style, bringing complex biochemical processes into an easily digestible format, but importantly, with practical clinical applications, so Belinda, welcome once again. how are you
1: thanks andrew i 'm well thank you
0: belinda today we 're going to be talking about a rather complex uh, subject, uh, and it 's one which I really need to get a greater handle on and that 's how nutrition and inflammation affect mood disorders and neurological conditions. Tell me about this because we 're going to delve right into it so I guess to start off with, why do we need to look towards integrative or complementary medicine when we already have standard medications for so many psychiatric or psychological conditions?
1: So what seems to be the issue is that with depressive disorders and anxiety disorders, these conditions really are multifactorial. There's numerous different uh, issues which are contributing to these conditions developing. And therefore, although antidepressants do work in certain cases, they don't necessarily achieve the desired outcome for a large number of the individuals Mm -hmm. prescribed these. Uh, If you look at the research, uh, depending on what paper you read, uh, it's believed that anywhere between 60 to 90% of people prescribed antidepressants fail to get a benefit that's superior to placebo. And what that says to us, yeah, it's quite significant. And it's not to say that the antidepressants don't have their place because they absolutely do. But what it does say is that we need to understand what is happening within these individuals so that we can address those issues as well and either find something that can be used as an alternative to the antidepressant or that can be taken in conjunction with the antidepressant to improve patient outcomes.
0: We've certainly got to do something, though, because this is a a very scary and ever-increasing area of uh, of medicine, and that is the need for some sort of medication to help with depression, which is just exploding in its prevalence.
1: It is, it is. it's believed that at least 3 million Australians at any given time are suffering a depressive or anxiety disorder. And when we look at suicide rates, suicide, of course, being the most devastating consequence of depression, remains the leading killer of Australians between the ages of 15 and 44. So we really do need to look at how we can help these people better.
0: Mm, absolutely. So you mentioned anxiety disorders and depressive disorders. Mm-hmm. And there's also bipolar depression as well. So are they all very different? Like, how do, they, how do you classify them?
1: So in the past, it has been believed that they are very different diseases. However, if we look at the underlying issues which are present in each of these different conditions, they are quite similar and they appear more to be extensions of each other as opposed to separate individual yeah. Conditions yeah. and what can determine the way in or what disease an individual expresses can be related to genetics, uh, other contributing factors, lifestyle issues, diet, what nutritional deficiency they have, and a range of different
0: issues. Let's go into these underlying issues. What are they? How do you categorise them? How do you differentiate them?
1: So the different factors that seem to be present within the bodies and brains of these individuals suffering anxiety disorders and depressive disorders are things like neuroinflammation, uh, also to mitochondrial dysfunction and oxidative stress Within the brain and also the body, uh, which of course contributes to glutathione depletion. Uh, dysbiosis uh, is emerging as a key culprit in the development of a range of mood disorders. Huge area. Yeah, in either on its own or in conjunction with mm. the other issues. And then of course there's there is genetics, epigenetic factors, and different single nucleotide polymorphisms are becoming linked to an increased risk of developing a range of different mood disorders, and of course, poor diet and a sedentary lifestyle is a huge contributing factor and really it's it should really be the first thing that we address in mm. anyone presenting with a mood disorder.
0: I think Felice Jacka has done some amazing work on this, showing that nutrition really does have a place mm. in in depressive disorders and, and outcomes.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, the brain is part of the body. And if mm. we're not looking after the body, we can't possibly expect the brain to be functioning efficiently. And when we look at brain-derived neurotrophic factor, also known as BDNF, mm. this is something which has been found to be depleted in people suffering depression, anxiety disorders and neurodegenerative diseases. And there's some good solid research which has linked a poor diet and a sedentary lifestyle Mm. to lower levels of this BDNF, hence predisposing someone to a greater risk of these disorders.
0: So if people with depression have low BDNF, what would suggest that they're more susceptible to other disorders of the brain-associated associated with neurodegeneration
1: well BDnF what what this is it's a it's a protein that is expressed both in the brain and also throughout the rest of the body and what it's responsible for is supporting the survival and also the regeneration of, of neurons so it's it's important for neuroplasticity so in the past where we always thought that if a brain cell died it was unable to be regenerated what we now know through the discovery of proteins like BDnF is that brain cells and nerve cells can in fact be regenerated and BDNF is one of the proteins responsible for this. If we have a reduced expression of BDNF in the brain, Mm. this compromises neuronal cell survival and regeneration. And the specific types of neuronal cells which BDNF is responsible for protecting and regenerating are such ones as the serotonergic neurons, which are present in areas of the brain responsible for not only mood, emotion and behaviour, but also learning and memory. So if we have decreased function and decreased health of these particular areas of the brain responsible for mood, it's very likely we'll also get a decline in our learning and memory and and cognition.
0: So do you find that... um the learning and cognition, or the, let's say the memory aspects, precede um, depressive episodes?
1: Uh, more the the other way, in right. fact. So uh, a recent study, which was conducted on over 2,000 individuals, uh, looked at Uh, people who were experiencing depression and followed them over a number of years and what they found was that depression was a prodrome for dementia or preceded dementia so in a way the presence of depression was almost a warning sign that these individuals were at greater risk of developing
0: cognitive cognitive decline. decline gotcha
1: so it was the the mood-related symptoms were expressed and felt sooner than, say, the cognitive decline was.
0: Is is that one reason maybe that cognitive decline is so hard to recover from, that it's sort of entrenched after, you know, many, many years maybe of, of depressive episodes or something like that?
1: Uh, possibly. So it it is likely to be due to years and years of slow decline mm. in the health of those areas of the brain. But because we do know what contributes to BDNF suppression, mm-hmm. we also understand what we can do to enhance BDNF. And there are a number of different uh, treatments and practices that people can do in order to increase the expression of these neurotrophic factors to enhance neuroplasticity and help to at least enhance the health and the function of of these particular areas of the brain.
0: Has anybody ever elucidated any um, antecedents to low BDNF, like early onset stuff? Has anybody thought about, like, before you get a depressive episode and you now have low BDNF, what's 10 years prior? Has anybody looked at this or...?
1: I haven't looked at any specific studies linking to that, but... What I I do know is that definitely uh, they've shown high levels of inflammation Mm -hmm. to be linked to reduced neurotrophic support, reduced BDNF. So addressing inflammation with uh, products like curcumin and also fish oil have shown to significantly increase BDNF expression. Saffron has even been Mm -hmm. shown to be able to do this. In fact, long-term use of SSRIs also has been shown to increase BDNF. Uh And there's a school of thought that with SSRI medications, antidepressants, a great deal of the benefits experienced from long-term use of these actually comes from the enhanced BDNF expression, not so much the immediate increase in available serotonin. Right. Um, the other factors that have being linked to compromised BDNF expression is significant dysbiosis early on in life. Uh Uh, So ensuring good colonisation of the microbiome within children Mm. is incredibly important in order to ensure healthy levels of that BDNF are in their brain Mm. to help with healthy uh, brain development and reduce the risk, of course, then of anxiety and depressive disorders later in life.
0: And I would gather then that... um a sedentary lifestyle would lower BDNF and it would therefore lead on that sedentary lifestyle would reduce BDNF. So conversely, exercise would increase BDNF. Is that right? Absolutely. And this is why it's so important to get these depressed patients moving in some form or another.
1: Absolutely. So exercise certainly has been shown to increase that BDNF expression quite significantly. And there are studies which have shown exercise to be equal in effectiveness to antidepressant medications in its ability to enhance the, the moods of people suffering from certain disorders.
0: So if we know all this... Does it mean that we don't need the antidepressants, uh, considering, you know, that you've got a 50-50-odd chance of if they're going to work or not?
1: Not necessarily. They they certainly have their place. Uh, There's no doubt that a good portion of the population that do take the antidepressants will get a benefit. And what you tend to find is that with increasing severity of depression in individuals, you get an increased response. So for those situations where there is severe depression, antidepressants absolutely have their place. However, if we look at the more mild to moderate cases, it is possible that recommending nutritional supplementation which can correct deficiencies contributing to the depression, uh, addressing inflammation that's present, addressing dysbiosis, improving the diet and encouraging someone to get moving really could and should be the first line therapy for these people. And only when that doesn't work do we move on to the antidepressants.
0: What about the psychosocial aspects of depression and anxiety? The cognitive behaviour therapy, which Dr Mark Donohoe would beat me over the head with, <laughs> he would say, it's <laughs> mindfulness, it's mindfulness. But what about those and how they would they work, therefore, on BDNF? And you know, in the way that they reduce stress, maybe?
1: One of the other factors which will significantly compromise BDNF and contribute to certain neurotransmitter imbalances in the brain is chronic stress. So when we have high levels of stress, whether that be from external sources or negative self-talk, what that does is increase circulating glucocorticoids, for example, and it's been shown to reduce neurotrophic support. It's also linked to an increased accumulation of gluten in the brain, which activates the NMDA receptor. This contributes to excited toxicity, and you end up with, again, reduced neurotrophic support due to that. But what we also see is exhausted GABA function and uh, reduced serotonin function, lower levels of dopamine, all stemming from this chronic stress. So it is absolutely essential to be addressing whatever it is that's causing this initiation of a stress response in an individual, whether it be mindfulness or meditation or cognitive behavioural therapy. Mm. Uh, and, of course, counselling is incredibly important mm. as well.
0: So we've spoken about nutrition, but what about supplementation?
1: So there's some good research to support the use of certain nutrients in combination with antidepressant therapy. Uh, So, for example, if you had someone presenting who was on an antidepressant, however, was not responding, there are certain nutrients which have been shown to help with uh, getting people to start responding to those medications. Zinc, for example, at just 25 milligrams a day has been shown to help those who weren't responding to their medication to start responding. Uh, Curcumin has also been shown to enhance the effectiveness of antidepressants. So too has fish oil at doses that provide about 1000 milligrams of EPA per day. Mm. One particular study administered uh, either the fish oil at that 1,000 milligram of EPA per day, 20 milligrams of an antidepressant, or the two combined. And what they found was that the fish oil and the antidepressant were quite similar in their ability to achieve significant results Mm -hmm. in terms of improving the mood. However, the two together Mm. showed even better results. So So a truly
0: synergistic effect.
1: Yeah, and that's where nutritional medicine and and, uh, integrative medicine really can be a complementary therapy. It doesn't have Mm. to be an alternative one and people can get really useful results. Mm. Uh, Uh, I might
0: point out that um, Maria McCreedy is of Flinders Medical Centre. She's done some brilliant research basically showing that DHA really does not seem to have an effect in depression. Is that right? Is that what you've seen?
1: um, There is some emerging... Uh, research, which is showing DHA to be useful at enhancing BDNF. Oh, okay. And interestingly too, curcumin yep. can actually enhance DHA levels in the brain due to wow. its ability to enhance the expression of the enzymes necessary to convert ALA to DHA. So yep. it enhances that pool of enzymes in the liver, such as the elongase enzymes. Uh, and so that's where, say, curcumin and oil would actually work really effectively together to enhance that uh, BDNF and ultimately improve the health of the brain
0: but there's other things besides BDNF and or compromised BDNF levels right
1: absolutely yeah so there's there's a huge range of different factors that we we need to consider but they all tend to be quite linked so for example if we look at uh, what it is that compromises BDNF. Inflammation is a huge one. Mm. Mm. Inflammation contributes to and is a result of oxidative stress. What you have linked to there is mitochondrial dysfunction. Glutathione depletion will be seen there at the same time. So yep. all of these factors are really important to consider. Yep. Uh, and when we look at high levels of inflammation in the body of an individual, a huge contributing factor there can be dysbiosis and poor gut integrity. Mm. Mm. Uh, We know that when there's compromised gut integrity, this leads to the increased passage of LPS or lipopolysaccharides. That elicits an amplified immune response. We get an increased level of inflammation that can compromise blood-brain barrier integrity, and as a result, not only do we have that high level of inflammation in the body and the brain, we also get the nervous system suddenly being uh, at... the the mercy of toxins that are entering the body because uh, certain compounds such as toxins that are circulating in the blood that would otherwise have been not granted passage through the blood-brain barrier Mm -hmm. and into the central nervous system suddenly are allowed uh, to pass. And as a result, that further inflames the brain and further contributes to that mitochondrial dysfunction, et cetera, et cetera. So gut health uh, really needs to be addressed as well.
0: It's really interesting how you you make that link between the inflammation and the mitochondrial deficits and the uh, lowered levels of glutathione. That, to me, also links in methylation, which seems to be a key component of mood disorders. Can you explain a little bit more about methylation and its issues, please?
1: Sure. So, uh, I mean, methylation is absolutely essential for a huge number of different uh, reactions and processes within the body. And uh, certain nutrients that we know to be associated with good methylation include folates, also vitamin B12, vitamin B6, and a deficiency of these nutrients certainly has been linked to to depression. Correcting deficiencies of these nutrients have also been shown to uh, help with alleviating symptoms of depression. And they've also been shown to enhance the results people achieve from long-term antidepressant therapy.
0: But there's issues with methylation in certain individuals. And this is this MTHFR- conundrum, which I really need to learn a lot more about. Yeah. It seems to be a lot more complex than what people think.
1: It's it's incredibly complex. And I think for everything that we do know, we don't know something mm. as well. And it's it's great that people are becoming aware of these epigenetic factors that can be present in people as it increases our awareness of the importance of personalised nutrition. And uh, it also increases our understanding of the fact that we can't have one strict protocol that we give to everyone presenting with the same disease because the the different underlying factors or what is contributing to their disease can be very, very different. And so we need to treat everyone individually. Uh, MTHFR and the single nucleotide, polymorphism on the gene and coning for this enzyme certainly has uh, gained popularity or um, a lot of practitioners have gained awareness of this this SNP and a lot of people are testing for it. However, I think people have gotten a little bit bogged down in looking at this one single nucleotide polymorphism because, yes, the presence of this certainly can compromise healthy methylation, but in any individual we can have any, anywhere up to about 10,000 different polymorphisms on our genes and these can all interact to contribute to a range of different imbalances and therefore it's important that we don't get bogged down looking at just one single nucleotide polymorphism. We need to take a step back and look at the, the big picture. So, yes, Check for the MTHFR SNP. If it's present, look at the bigger picture, though, as well. See if homocysteine is elevated. Look at whole blood histamine. Uh, Do a more comprehensive methylation profile and gather a good understanding of what it is that's going on in that individual. And that will then help guide you as to how you approach that person.
0: Let's talk about histamine, because that's really interesting, too.
1: Uh, So basically, histamine is commonly thought of when we think allergies. It's not really. yeah. (laughs) So with histamine, we often associate that with allergies, uh, not so much with uh, mood disorders and and brain Mm. function. However, histamine is a neurotransmitter. And high levels of histamine have been associated with under-methylation and a range of mood disorders. And the reason for this is that methylation is an important step in metabolising histamine. Yeah. So if we have uh, low levels of methyl donors such as SAMe, that will contribute to histamine accumulating. Mm. However, the, met- the, the SAMe is not the only factor mm. involved in the uh, metabolism of histamine. Copper is involved as well. So you could have excess copper and that would contribute to high Histamine. Sorry, low histamine.
0: A oh, low histamine.
1: Yes, because that high level of copper is resulting in the excessive metabolism and break and, and oh, sort okay. of conversion of histamine to other downstream things, and that high histamine though could be interpreted as as being an overmethylation issue, uh, but again, that's where we need to. Consider all possibilities, so it could merely be a zinc deficiency which has contributed to, to the a copper, copper toxicity <laughs> yep, and that's caused histamine to uh, be low, uh, not necessarily an over methylation problem
0: so, so to me like it, i'm just wondering about a stratification here and cost saving maybe if you know like zinc b6 magnesium was given as a prime uh, supplement mm-hmm. to somebody to help with their depression and then as a trial, and if that didn't make any difference over, say, a two-month period, then would you then um, include further testing and and look further?
1: Absolutely, and what you could definitely start with Looking at the diet and ensure that there's healthy levels of natural folates being provided by the diet, mm-hmm. first of all. So dark green leafy vegetables, not necessarily the overprocessed foods fortified with mm, folic yes, acid. Yes. <laughs> uh, you best to look for that the natural folates coming in through the diet and ensuring that there isn't that B twelve deficiency. But absolutely both zinc and magnesium are uh, have been shown to be quite effective at addressing depression and anxiety symptoms. And the reason for this is that both of these minerals have been shown to increase the promotion of BDNF that we were speaking about earlier Mm -hmm. and can actually result in synaptic sprouting. So uh, they're really important and really effective for enhancing the health of a range of areas of the brain. What they also do is interact with the NMDA receptor and actually act as an antagonist almost. And what that does is help with calming Mm -hmm. excessive excitability in the brain that reduces the excitotoxicity, which we know to compromise BDNF expression. So, So, yeah, really, really important. And because we know of the detrimental effects copper can have, zinc sufficiency is very important because zinc's part of the metallothionine, which prevents excessive copper uptake. Copper, as we mentioned earlier, can cause... Excessive metabolism of histamine, uh, which can help, which can contribute to to low histamine, which uh, has a range of uh, complications associated with that. Uh, copper is also involved in the conversion of dopamine to noradrenaline, so if we have excess copper, that can uh, result in the hyperactivity and inability to sleep type symptoms. So, and that causes someone to be really quite anxious, and again. Ensuring a healthy level of zinc uh, can assist with calming that as well. Zinc, of course, is also important for gut integrity uh, and therefore that will reduce sort of or help with reducing systemic inflammation, which is stemming from poor gut integrity. So uh, it certainly plays a really important role hmm. uh, in ensuring uh, good mood health. And then vitamin B6, of course, it's essential for, for GABA synthesis. And it also plays a role in uh, folate metabolism and uh, folate activation, and also helping with uh, homocysteine metabolism as well.
0: So thinking about uh, a, a clinic population that clinicians might be seeing, and that would uh, the, who experience a huge explosion of anxiety, and that's the younger group. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're talking about a zinc supplement and we're trying to get it from food, the best one is obviously oysters, but no, not many t- teenagers <laughs> are going to be no. into the uh, <laughs> um, Oyster Mornay or anything like that or Kilpatrick. But, so um, nuts...
1: Nuts and seeds. N- nuts and seeds? What yeah. else? Nuts and seeds and, and pepitas, uh, particularly. Pumpkin um, seeds, of course. Yes, yes. yes they're, they're certainly rich in, in zinc. Um, and then I think that the key thing is to really encourage those plant foods and the healthy uh, protein sources. And ideally, you also want to be sourcing organic produce, if you can, yep. Uh and ensuring that they're not over-consuming processed foods in the place of good, fresh produce. Mm. Because every time we over-process grains and and, and other ingredients, often a great deal of the minerals are are stripped Mm. from that food and people are consuming nutrient-deficient foods as a result of that. So uh, encouraging those plant foods, the nuts, the seeds and the healthy protein sources and the healthy fat sources Mm. uh, are very, very important.
0: So so what other um, sources of uh, protein and fats can we get?
1: Uh, So looking at um, protein sources, ideally fish, the oily fish are fantastic. So salmon, mackerel, sardines, uh, they're fantastic sources of both protein and good fats. And grass-fed meats or grass-fed beef, sorry, are a fantastic source of protein and, again, uh, healthful fats that are important for the central nervous system. When we're looking at other sort of healthy fats, coconut oil is a great source of good fats and stable fats that won't be damaged uh, during the cooking process and contribute to increased uh, risk of lipid peroxidation in the body. And walnuts and, and pecans mm. are also a great source of, of omega-3 fatty acids. And if you're looking at what sort of oils to use on salads, virgin and olive oil is fantastic You know what's well. really
0: interesting to me is that a lot of these food sources are used to dampen inflammation.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it
0: seems to be a key component with so many chronic diseases. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. So uh, inflammation, the it seems to be at the root of, like you said, so many chronic diseases and mood disorders mm. uh, definitely aren't Uh, outside of this. Mm. So we mentioned earlier that inflammation uh, contributes to that suppressed BDNF, which compromises neuroplasticity, the health of the brain in in areas responsible for learning memory and also mood and behaviour. So there's a range of different ways that inflammation can contribute to mood disorders outside of that suppressed BDNF. First of all, when there's a high level of inflammation in the body, you get an increased uh, release of an enzyme in dolamine-2,3-dioxygenase. What it contributes to is the degradation of tryptophan or the movement of tryptophan down a pathway known as the the carnurinine pathway, as opposed to that tryptophan being used to synthesise serotonin and then melatonin. So that's another way in which inflammation can contribute to mood problems It's through that depletion of, of serotonin and melatonin. In addition to this, when you have an increased um, amount of tryptophan going down that kynurenine pathway, you also get an increased production of what is known as quinolinic acid. And what this can contribute to is excessive excitability or excitotoxicity in the brain mm. that reduced neurotrophic support and that nasty sort of self-perpetuating cycle we've been talking about. Uh, in addition to this, we also know that uh, inflammation increases the release of substance P. Now, substance P is associated with pain. Mm-hmm. Um, so what inflammation also contributes to is an increased release of substance P. So substance P is responsible for, for pain, mm-hmm. uh, but it's what it's also known to contribute to is an increased uh, permeability of the blood-brain barrier, again, rendering an individual more sensitive to toxins in their environment because they're able to gain passage into the central nervous system system. The substance P can also interfere with GABA function. GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter, just like serotonin is, and it's important for calming activity in the brain and helping to switch off stress responses that have been initiated. So it can really contribute to that anxiety. And high levels of substance P have also been associated with uh, social withdrawal Mm -hmm. uh, that people uh, can experience. And interestingly, uh, colitis and inflammatory bowel disease, the inflammation associated with those has been associated with triggered release of substance P. So
0: it's really interesting with chronic autoimmune disease, you get this social withdrawal
1: Mm
0: -hmm. um, and uh, you know, like a lack of effect, a lack of mood.
1: And yeah, so it's obviously having a condition associated with, with pain and degeneration of certain functions, of course, that's going to contribute to a certain level of depression due to the awareness of the disease. Mm. But it's also, it's a systemic thing as well. Yeah. If we can help address that inflammation in their body and correct any nutritional deficiencies, we can potentially help them feel better and Minimize some of the symptoms that they're experiencing.
0: Do oh okay. Sorry. What about increased MMP nine? But there's, oh yes, sorry. There's, there's so many other factors though of inflammation. One of them is these matrix metalloproteinases, which you see again in so many chronic diseases like endometriosis, and cancer, mm-hmm. and things like that. Various MMPs are activated. Tell me more about these. These are really interesting.
1: So one particular one, matrix metalloproteinase 9, it's often elevated where you have inflammation and it's been linked to increased uh, blood-brain barrier permeability. So people who have high levels of inflammation, therefore an increased expression of this MMP9, tend to have a central nervous system which is uh, experiencing a greater exposure to toxins and other substances circulating in the body, and as a result, they're at increased risk of developing mood disorders and cognitive decline. Uh, what's interesting too is that they found that where uh, children who developed autism, when they looked at the amniotic fluid uh, of the, uh, in the womb uh, prior to the delivery or just after delivery, they found elevated levels of MMP9. So it's quite possible that that increased blood-brain barrier dysfunction Mm. renders these individuals more sensitive to toxins in their environment, which then contributes to that neuroinflammation, the oxidative stress, the mitochondrial dysfunction, the glutathione depletion and all the neurotransmitter imbalances that these children uh, experience.
0: Mm. So when it comes to compounds that we commonly attribute to using to treat inflammation, like curcumin, they're anti-inflammatory and sure they've they can they've been shown to reduce in, in, inflammation, particularly in osteoarthritis and, and there's some work in depression now, things like mm-hmm. that. W- would you expect, though, to see a direct influence on mood health?
1: Yes, it has been shown that uh, using supplements like curcumin uh, certainly can result in beneficial effects on the mood. The same goes for fish oil. Uh, one particular... Study using uh, fish oil had teenagers who had been previously non responsive to uh, antidepressant medication, and they administered uh, high doses of fish oil to these individuals. And what they found was that they had a remission in 100% of the adolescents who used wow. a high dose of fish oil. Uh, I think that was equivalent to about 10 grams of EPA. So they were Gosh. good, high doses. <laughs> yes. um, that would be in a liquid. Mark it was a liquid. Something. That's yeah. right. It was a liquid. Uh, so they, they gave a smaller dose to one group. Uh, I can't remember the, the exact dosage, but the smaller dose did achieve remission in 40% mm-hmm. of those patients, but mm-hmm. it was the higher dose um, that achieved the remission in 100% yeah. of
0: those patients. So maybe some of their negative results in trials, uh, the, the thing they really have to look at is the dose.
1: Absolutely. it's It seems that, that higher doses are what achieve the clinical outcomes in a short period of time. Even magnesium, for example, really high doses have achieved very good results in just seven days. Mm. So we're talking doses of up to 1,200 milligrams per day, yeah. in, across four Obviously different divided doses. doses that yes. that <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, in in people who have been previously non-responsive to medication, giving these high doses of magnesium have achieved uh, a reduction in symptoms, a significant reduction in depressive symptoms after just seven days.
0: So, if somebody gave, if if you wanted 1,200 milligrams, you'd be giving like 300 milligrams.
1: Four times a day, day. yes. So with each meal and then on retiring.
0: Yeah. What about things like food intolerances though?
1: Yeah, so food intolerances definitely can be contributing factors and always need to be considered. Mm. So uh, non-celiac gluten intolerance uh, certainly should be uh, considered. Uh, Some research shows that at least 50% of the population or nearly 50% of the population uh, exhibits some degree of non-celiac gluten intolerance Mm. and what this causes is a increase in uh, gut barrier dysfunction Mm -hmm. in the hours following ingestion of gluten and what that means is that you get that increased passage of unwanted molecules into the body that causes um, increased inflammation and the downstream effects that we've spoken about. So definitely considering reducing gluten in the diet of these people with any sort of chronic inflammatory or depressive disorder. Uh, And then fructose malabsorption uh, should be considered as well. So if anyone presents with irritable bowel syndrome type symptoms, Mm. it's worth looking into. Uh, fructose mm-hmm. as a culprit. There, yep. um, a huge portion of people suffering IBS uh, are believed to have some degree of fructose malabsorption. Uh, one particular study actually took people with experiencing depressive symptoms who had fructose malabsorption issues and they removed the fructose from the diet and after a number of weeks their depressive symptoms alleviated just through that reduction in in fructose and it's believed that if you have fructose malabsorption and continue to consume it that actually inter- interferes with tryptophan uptake and therefore you end up with a compromised uh, production of of serotonin.
0: I see a potential danger, though, in some people that might go, therefore, fruit fruit is bad Mm. in depressives. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and I'm always very cautious about, I understand about short-term withholding of certain dietary components Mm -hmm. to achieve a goal, but shouldn't we be healing the gut and our normal digestive responses so that we're able to eventually, for the most part, Handle those important food components, what do you do about fructose
1: so with with fructose, I think, definitely uh, remove the fructose for a period, mm-hmm. um, particularly the high fructose foods and high sorbitol foods as well, they tend to be uh, a culprit uh-huh. uh, with fructose malabsorption issues as well, and definitely look to enhance the health of the gut so uh, first of all you'd be providing the glutamine which is an essential fuel source for the replication and renewal of enterocytes but also looking to recolonize and ensure the absence of dysbiosis because the beneficial microbes that should be colonising the gut. They produce short chain fatty acids, which fuel the replication and renewal of colonocytes. So, uh, the glutamine and the probiotics are two really important components uh, for healing the gut and ensuring the absence of that the, sorry the absence of that increased permeability mm-hmm. that renders the body more sensitive to to toxins being consumed. But what we also know too is that by and improving the health of the gut cells and reducing the local inflammation, we get an increased expression or an increased or enhanced release of certain disaccharide enzymes which help us to digest certain carbohydrates more efficiently and that could then uh, enable someone to reintroduce a small amount of fructose into their diet as long as it's fructose coming from natural sources rather than foods which are concentrated in fructose that has been added. Yeah,
0: so I think this is a major differentiation in the foods versus these uh, you know, processed foods and, and food additives, things like that that we're seeing on the market today in, in ever-increasing amount.
1: And it, and it can even be that the sugars that the fructose exists within a food with. Yeah. So if fructose is consumed together with glucose, there seems to be a reduced likelihood of the same Problem. So because they're in a ratio together, Uh, uh, the fructose doesn't seem to cause the same side effects that it would uh, on its own.
0: Gotcha. Okay. What about toxicity though?
1: So toxicity is a a huge thing. So uh, we mentioned copper toxicity Mm. earlier on linked with a a zinc deficiency. We've also uh, talked about how when you have a high level of inflammation that contributes to that matrix metalloproteinase 9 elevation that can lead to blood-brain barrier dysfunction and increase someone's susceptibility to toxins that that may be in their environment. So they could be exposed to the same level of toxins as the next person, yet they're more sensitive to them because these toxins are being granted passage into an area of the body that they shouldn't be. But again, when we look at genetics certain people just have an increased sensitivity to certain toxins. Mm-hmm. One example is when we look at mould toxins, uh, about 25% of the population carry a genetic defect, which reduces their ability to metabolise and detoxify mould toxins from their body. So the, the presence of these mole toxins in their body, uh, because they're being unable to be detoxified, continually activates an inflammatory response. What that does is damages the leptin receptor in the body, in the brain. The leptin binding to its receptor is essential for the release of MSH or melanocyte-stimulating hormone yep. Downstream, that's essential for a huge range of different hormones and neurotransmitters. So it, but it can ends com- up
0: in weight control. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, absolutely. so mold can lead to weight issues.
1: Absolutely. So basically, we know leptin is. Uh, an orexogenic hormone. So what it does is it stimulates metabolism and suppresses the appetite. So it's released from fat cells uh, and tells us that we have enough energy, we don't need to eat, and we can keep the metabolism high. As soon as you have blockage of that leptin receptor or damage to it, or we get leptin resistance, what this can contribute to is poor appetite control and suppressed metabolism because the body feels that it needs to preserve energy mm. so weight control uh or sorry weight issues and appetite uh, dysregulation uh, can certainly be something that stems from this mould toxin toxicity. Uh, what can also happen is we get uh, imbalances in melatonin, which contributes to sleep disturbances. We get low levels of endorphins, which leads to increased pain sensitivity. Uh, we also get imbalances in hormones responsible for regulating uh, water reabsorption mm. in the kidneys, mm. so that can contribute to a constant state of thirst mm. and, and dehydration oh, there's, a, there's a huge range of have yeah, different problems that can stem from that mold toxicity. so if someone presents with depressive symptoms with sleep disturbances, chronic pain, f- those fibromyalgia chronic fatigue type symptoms, it is worth. Asking the question is, do you have mould in the home? Is it worth investigating this? Is it in the workplace? Uh, because these individuals may need to take the steps to remove that mould from their environment if, they're, if they want to get well. And then, of course, high-dose anti inflammatory so high-dose fish oil, high-dose curcumin, uh, are really important, um, and detoxification support too.
0: We've mentioned previously the MTHFR, mm-hmm. the methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase gene. And this sort of ties in with folic acid, folinic acid, and how we do this, how Mm -hmm. we achieve methylation. Can you talk to me about the safety of folinic acid in depression, folic acid in depression? How, How do we treat this cycle? And what are some of the pitfalls that I think we've fallen into um, maybe, to me, it's not oversimplifying, but becoming burdened, bogged down in it.
1: Yeah, so it's it's complicated and it can depend on the individual and where there are certain polymorphisms on, on which enzymes and what we're depleted in. Uh, basically, with folic acid, concerns have been raised over its safety. However, the jury does still seem to be out on this because there are studies to support the use of folic acid in depression. Uh, And folinic acid is a naturally occurring form of of folate, so it may or appears to be uh, a superior option. Uh, And also, too, it's a couple of steps closer to active folate or 5-tetrahydrofolate when compared to folic acid. The issue with folic acid, I think, is that, yes, it's a synthetic form, but people who are having excessive amounts of folic acid that we're concerned about, uh, it's often due to the fact that it's coming in from fortified food sources, which means they're likely to be consuming a high amount of processed foods as opposed to foods that naturally would contain the natural folates.
0: So what about... Pie rolls, though, that's a hot, hot topic at the moment and it's something I don't fully understand. Can you please explain to me what the importance is where, to do with their metabolism? Help me. <laughs> so,
1: um, with when we're looking at pyroles, also referred to as HPL or hydroxyhemo uh, I it's... hate how
0: that rolls off your tongue. No. <laughs> I <laughs>
1: hope hydroxy... I pronounced it correctly. Hydroxyhemo pyrolin <laughs> right? Or HPL, often referred to as pyroles. Uh, basically, this is another epigenetic issue, generally, or it can often be just associated with a huge amount of oxidative stress in the body of an mm. individual. So, what it seems is that HPL is a byproduct. Productive heme breakdown. And in certain individuals, there's a higher production of this. Normally, it's released into the gut for excretion uh, primarily. But in situations where you have uh, leaky gut, some of that is allowed passage back into the body. The body is then very effective at eliminating that through the kidneys. However, the issue with this HPL or pyrroles are that they have a high affinity for zinc and vitamin B6. And so as they're excreted through the kidneys, uh, they take that zinc and B6 with it. And There's as that a,
0: zinc and B6 again.
1: It is, yes. And so that obviously that contributes to a lot of depressive and anxiety type symptoms. If someone has that very high HPL level and thus end up with a very uh, significantly increased uh, excretion of zinc and vitamin B6 from their body. So as you can imagine, when we get high levels of oxidative stress, that contributes to an increased HPL uh, level. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, of course, if we have dysbiosis and leaky gut, that leads to an increased reabsorption of that HPL, greater circulating levels, greater amounts excreted, greater amounts of zinc and B6.
0: Compounding problem.
1: So, absolutely. And so, therefore, if we have someone with high pyrroles or high HPL or... High levels of MO factor, which mm. it's often referred to as well, mm-hmm. showing up in the urine. Uh, what it says to us, first of all, is that we need to correct that deficiency of zinc and vitamin B6, but we also need to look at healing the gut mm. uh, to reduce that reabsorption of the HPL or the pyrrole. And we also need to address oxidative stress and any of the symptoms or side effects stemming from that. So, good high doses of zinc are important not only to correct the deficiency, uh, but also to ensure that we're not uh, developing a copper toxicity because, as we mentioned before, high copper can contribute to low histamine, uh, but it can also contribute to an increased conversion of dopamine to noradrenaline and those hyperactivity-type symptoms or hyperanxiousness. Uh, And the zinc, too, is also very important for the integrity of the gut. So... Increased HPL pyro passage, hmm. increased zinc deficiency, worsened gut permeability, even worsened <laughs> HPL Self reabsorption. It is. It's one of those nasty cycles. So it's really necessary that we address that gut integrity it's with zinc. One. Yes,
0: it, it, it seems. It, it's like if in doubt, treat the gut.
1: Absolutely, <laughs> treat the gut absolutely and and improve the diet and, and increase the the amount of antioxidants and nutrients coming in through the diet. and vitamin b six, of course, is important too. We know that's essential for healthy methylation for keeping homocysteine levels. Under control and ensuring that conversion of homocysteine ultimately down to cysteine and glutathione, uh, B six of course is important for GABA synthesis. So there's a huge range of reasons why we need a healthy level of vitamin B six in the body. W-
0: with this MTHFR and with the cryptopyrrole mode factor, there's a school of thought that says you know that you shouldn't use certain nutrients in certain mm-hmm. disorders. Mm-hmm. Tell me how you get around that. Like, How do you go through that maze? Is there, is there things that you watch out for?
1: Yeah, so there's different schools of thought around whether certain nutrients are safe or, or unsafe. I, I have heard that uh, it's not recommended to use folate in anyone who is depressed because of folate increasing the expression of serotonin reuptake proteins. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's also a huge body of evidence that supports... Uh, the presence of a folate deficiency in mm. depression and the usefulness of folate supplementation. So I and don't. That's think... even
0: folic acid.
1: Folic acid, yeah. yes. So I don't think that we should completely uh, recommend against folic acid or folate. But what I think we should do is encourage natural folates in the diet first and foremost, and possibly keep it from the supplement protocol initially Mm -hmm. and see how the patient responds. And also look at blood tests as well, Get a good comprehensive methylation profile done if you want to look further into it. look at the levels of active folate, look at b twelve levels, and determine how you proceed with that patient based on their individual results
0: so let 's look at some of those tests mm-hmm. one of the things that that 's interested me and you know I know it 's not accepted by medical orthodoxy and and that is you know, looking at you 're looking at or you 're thinking about. Addressing neurochemistry within the blood brain barrier, mm-hmm. we can't get to that. But we can, some people say that we can measure metabolites of these neurotransmitters outside of the brain. So, what tests do you use or should you use when you're looking at? mood disorders, anxiety, depression?
1: So, uh, I mean, there's urinary tests which can look at certain neurotransmitter metabolites and there is some good research which has looked at correlations between neurotransmitter imbalances and certain symptoms. So that's con- that, that certainly does support or... Uh, the use of those tests to give an indication of what might be going on. I don't think any individual test should be used as a be-all and end-all, but it certainly can help uh, contribute to this picture that you're trying to develop about a patient. Mm -hmm. And I think if we go in, first of all, with correcting the diet, encouraging exercise, healing the gut... It's hard to go wrong and you'll often find that you get significant improvement in symptoms simply from doing that Mm. and reducing the inflammation in their body. So if you're concerned about folic acid or, or folate and B12 based on different recommendations for or against it, again, ensure that there's a good amount of these nutrients coming through the diet healing the gut, reducing the inflammation, correcting dysbiosis and see the results that develop from that and move on from there.
0: We spoke about, just briefly, we spoke about a dose for magnesium,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? 1,200 milligrams a day.
1: Up to. So between six and 800 milligrams yep. uh, often gets a very good result. Uh, just a few case studies I've seen have used up to the 1,200 milligrams. Okay. So milligrams.
0: between 600 and 1,200. So these, you're doubling mm-hmm. your dose. Yep. B6? Up
1: to 200 milligrams, but generally start around the 50 Mm -hmm. uh, and based on the individual. If there was severely or significantly elevated pyrroles, it could warrant a higher dose. Uh, 200 milligrams is probably the upper limit there. I wouldn't go higher than that. And again, watch the patient. And zinc? Zinc, generally 25 milligrams, has achieved significant results in, in studies. So you can go up to higher 50 to 100 milligram doses short term mm. in people who have those elevated pyrols. but generally a 25 to 50 milligram dosage would be sufficient.
0: Yeah, and I certainly wouldn't use um, over 100 milligrams long term.
1: No, just, because... Uh,
0: w- without reason, without cause.
1: Sure, mm. and absolutely. So with with uh, if you are treating uh with high doses of zinc. It's worth measuring copper as well uh, to ensure that we're not causing a uh, copper zinc imbalance yeah. because although, yes, copper toxicity is a concern, so too is a copper deficiency. Yes. It is absolutely essential. <laughs> myopathy. <laughs> yes. So it's, a, it's essential for a huge number of different enzymes mm. in the body. So it's, it's very important. I'd... Be more inclined to start low and increase as you need it.
0: Yep. And what are the nutrients? What, the folate.
1: So, folates, uh, folinic acid is the, the best source of folate that we can recommend here in Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have approval to yep. recommend the 5 MTHF. Uh, so, I definitely would recommend uh, folinic acid. It is mm-hmm. it is a natural, uh, naturally occurring form of folate, and you are avoiding certain steps uh, necessary to activate. Um, folate or to convert folate to its, its active form.
0: Mm-hmm. And what about B12?
1: So B12 generally about a thousand milligrams, sorry, a thousand micrograms. Micrograms, <laughs> yeah. <Milligrams. laughs> is uh, recommended and it's shown to be effective. So a sublingual uh, B12 is is very useful, uh, particularly for those individuals who there's a concern of high levels of inflammation in the gut that could be compromising a good B- B12 uh, absorption.
0: Yeah, and I make the point that um, what is it, 0.1% of B12 is absorbed despite intrinsic factor. It's absorbed passively, so doing it orally or you know either buccally or sublingually will just bypass that need for mm-hmm. absorption mechanisms. Yes. So even in the compromised gut.
1: Yeah, and it's been shown to be equal in effectiveness to the B12 injections when consumed over a month. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. What other nutrients? Fish oil, what dose?
1: Uh, So generally when looking to provide a therapeutic dose, I'd look to achieve at least 1,000 milligrams of EPA, Mm -hmm. uh, so a good sort of solid dose. If you have someone with severe depression who is not responding to antidepressants, you could quadruple that, uh, even just for a sort of short period of time to attempt to get some sort of result.
0: And some things we haven't really spoken about today, we mentioned them earlier, the herbs, saffron, kava. Tell me about these.
1: So uh, there's a number of herbs which can be very useful for people with uh, depressive and anxiety disorders. And the beauty of herbs is that they contain... A broad spectrum of different phytochemicals which can be beneficial across both anxiety and depressive disorders. So if we take uh, saffron, for example, it's useful in both sort of anxiety and, and depressive symptoms and of course is anti-inflammatory and shown to boost that BDNF uh, in the brain. Uh, St John's Wort is supported by a huge number of studies and is incredibly effective for uh, depression. However, of course, there is that uh, contraindication with using St John's wort in combination with certain medications. It it does interact with cytochrome P450 enzymes and can alter someone's response to their medication. So there is caution there uh, with St John's wort in combination with other medications. Kava uh, is a fantastic Anxiolytic, so it enhances the effectiveness of GABA in the brain to help provide that that calming uh, effect, and, and is very very useful in not only addressing the psychological or emotional uh, symptoms or side effects of stress, but can also um, be useful in reducing pain uh, and other complications or uh, comorbidities mm. of of stress.
0: Linda, you've taken us through a huge range of topics and you've really delved into some of the complexities that, I mean, they overwhelm me at the moment. I really have to learn more about them. So well done and thank you so much for taking us through the more personal aspects of how to treat people with mood disorders.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: This is FX Radio and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook.